seated. And I invite you this morning to turn to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As you turn there, uh, traditionally in two Sundays is when the church celebrates the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, which is what our passage is about this morning. And uh, we celebrate that because it's really the beginning of what's often called Passion Week, which is when Jesus fulfilled his passion to die and rise for our sins. Now, while the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere explicitly to celebrate Christ's triumphal entry, I do think the fact that all four Gospels record this event means that it's clearly important to Jesus. Jesus could have included it just once. Instead, he includes it four times. So it can only benefit us, I think, to reflect on this regularly, and I think reflect on it yearly. Uh, now, while the account of Christ's triumphal entry is largely the same in each gospel, there are differences, and those differences are important because they give us different perspectives that God wants us to have on the triumphal entry. So in Matthew, the triumphal entry is about proving that Jesus is the promised heir of David. In Luke, the emphasis is on Israel wanting a different kind of king, and in John, it shows that Jesus is the mighty king who saves his people by dying for us. So put together then, you could say this, that uh, Jesus is the heir of David that we didn't really want, but who still came and saved us through his sacrificial love expressed on death by a cross. So what about Mark? Well, in Mark, the triumphal entry is tied to the larger issue of the so-called messianic secret. Uh, you may know that throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is constantly telling people to keep his identity a secret. And Mark does this to force you to answer the question for yourself, who is Jesus? Now, I think the triumphal entry in Mark and the messianic secret in Mark are connected and I want to get at that connection through this question. Do I see Jesus the way that he wants to be seen? Or do I see Jesus the way that I want to see him? Do I see Jesus the way that he wants me to see him? Or do I see Jesus the way I want to see him? Uh, because as we're going to see in a moment, pun totally intended, uh, the crowd saw Jesus. They saw what he looked like, they saw his face, they saw him riding in on a donkey. But like all of the Gospels, Mark says that they did not see Jesus correctly. And Mark's Gospel forces us to ask, why? And then also to ask, how can we avoid that same problem? How can I see Jesus the way that he wants to be seen, not the way that I want to see him? And that shows us, by the way, that Mark's gospel is a complement to the other gospels, not only in terms of content, but in terms of how to receive that content. Mark wants us to see Jesus correctly. So let's look at this passage. Let's read Mark 11, 1 through 11, pray, and then we'll spend some time answering the question, how can I see Jesus the way that he wants to be seen? Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... To Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will enter it, and you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back to you here immediately. 
And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying that colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Thus far, the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which um, not only tells us who Jesus is, but also helps us learn to see him correctly and so receive him as he offers himself to us as our Savior. Father, we very much want to receive Jesus as he comes to us, but Lord, we know that we will not be able to do this unless your Spirit blesses your word to us. And so, Father, we pray, therefore, that your Spirit would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word this morning. And Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond and receive the word of our Lord Jesus, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said at the beginning, chapter 11 is the beginning of our Lord's final week of his uh, earthly life before his resurrection. It's a week he's going to spend in Jerusalem and in its suburbs. And as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, he tells two of his disciples that they need to run on ahead so they can go and grab a colt, a, a, a donkey, tied outside someone's house, which they're to take and bring to him. Oh, and if anyone asks, why are you taking the colt? Jesus tells them to say only the Lord has need of it, and they'll give it to you. Uh, and so the two disciples do this, right? As we saw, they ran on ahead. They find the colt, just as Jesus said they would. They get asked why they're taking it. They say the Lord has need of it, and they give the donkey to Jesus. Uh, if you've been in, a, in church for a while, this story, particularly this part of the story, is probably very familiar to you. And I think it's very encouraging for us just to note a few things that often get pointed out when this text is discussed. Uh, you can see here that Jesus very clearly knows the future. He knows about places and even the location of donkeys without having to be physically present to see them, uh, which proves, by the way, that the Lord does indeed keep his eye on the sparrow, or in this case, the donkey. Uh, and therefore, we know he keeps his eye on us as well. You can see his authority to sway hearts through his messenger's words. The disciples say what Christ tells them to say, which is not very full of information, and the people let them take the donkey. Uh, it's a small demonstration of the fact that uh, when the Lord sends out his people to preach his word, that he uses their preaching to sway hearts to his purposes. The Lord's word has power to effect change in the world. It's also very common to point out, and I think this is especially important, that in taking this cult, Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, where God says that the Messiah would come to his people riding on a cult, the foal of a donkey, and that when the Messiah arrives, God's people would have peace. And that's why Jesus gets the welcoming that he does. He's announcing himself as the Messiah, 
the king of peace, the deliverer of God's people. And that's also why he's riding in on a donkey. So there were two modes of transportation that kings would use. You know one, that's the horse. Uh, but the horse was a symbol of war. And kings rode on horses when they were conquering kingdoms. And they rode them into cities when they were announcing their military victories. Uh, king Jesus does not ride in on a horse. He answers on the second mode of transportation, which is a donkey. Donkeys were ridden as a symbol of peace. I mean, think about it. You can't go to war on a donkey. I mean, if, just picture that. It's a funny picture, right? That's why donkeys are symbols of peace. But just as importantly, they were also symbols of wealth, just like horses. To have a donkey or to have a horse means that you had the money to feed them, the land to graze them, the space to house them, and you had a way to protect them from thieves. Which, by the way, makes the fact that Jesus rides on this cult for the first time before an announcer ridden it actually kind of funny, right? Imagine someone buying a Rolls Royce, and then some guy comes off the street and says, my, my boss needs it. Oh, go ahead. I haven't driven it yet, but you can go ahead and take it. It'll be fine. But that's what happens. Uh, so to see Jesus correctly, we need to keep in mind the fact that the donkey means Jesus is a king and a Messiah riding into peace, not riding out into war. And we also need to see that Jesus is not a rich king, at least not in terms of earthly wealth. This is, again, not his donkey. He's borrowing it. Like he says in verse 3, he's going to return it. So here's a king who's coming in peace, but he has no earthly wealth. He's not bringing an earthly army. He's not bringing uh, earthly power. Though he is powerful, he knows the world. He knows the location of donkeys in his world. He moves hearts with his word. But he's also poor. Don't miss that. And again, don't miss the fact that he comes in peace. So with that, now notice how the crowd responds to Jesus when they see him riding into Jerusalem. Oh, and I should point out that riding into Jerusalem is important because Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. It's also the center of, of their faith. Jerusalem is where kings of Israel ruled from, and it's where the priests offered sacrifices for sin at the temple. So when Jesus rides in as the king of peace, he's riding into the political equivalent of Washington, D.C., and the religious equivalent of Notre Dame. Um, and did I just equate sports and religion? Would I do that? Uh, so here comes Jesus riding into Jerusalem. The crowds see him and notice what they do, verses 8 through 10. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So the crowd treats Jesus just like a king. Actually, just like in the Old Testament book of Judges, when Jehu pronounces himself to be king, the people made something of a red carpet by welcoming uh, him, by spreading out their cloaks in front of him. Which is telling because Jehu in the Bible is a very violent warrior king whose reign was characterized by massacre and death. And then they waved branches which is interesting because that's something people did to honor kings when they returned victorious from war. And we know from, I believe it's Matthew's gospel, they actually waved palm fronds, which is also a flag of the Maccabean revolt as well. So you get the sense then that though they see the donkey, some of the people are really seeing war and death 
and violence to their earthly enemies, not the promise of peace and life that the Messiah would bring to the whole world in Zechariah 9, verse 9. And when you couple that with the fact that the song they shouted along with the palm fronds is also an old battle cry from a successful revolution about 170 years prior to this, the Maccabean Revolt, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that battle cry is equivalent to our give me liberty or give me death. You all know that, right? You know what that means. That's what this Hosanna means. This is a revolutionary war cry. And when you put all that together, you have to ask yourself, are they seeing Jesus correctly? Because clearly they see a king. That's correct. They see a coming kingdom, which in part is correct. But did they see a powerful king coming in humility and poverty and peace, bringing peace to the world? Did they see a Messiah coming not to bring death, but life to themselves and to the world? I mean, very clearly they did not see that. Now, it's a very common interpretive move, and it's a good move, to look at the other Gospels for the reason why they missed Jesus in this way. And the answer you would hear is that many of them were looking for a political savior, like I see many Christians seem to be looking for today as well. Uh, Mark's Gospel assumes that you know those reasons. But I don't think that's the only reason Mark wants to give us about why they missed seeing Jesus correctly. Because if we ended there, the answer to the question, how do you see Jesus clearly, would simply be understand the Bible better. Uh, now, as Reformed people, we like that answer. I think it places an appropriate emphasis on Scripture and its authority, and it blesses us in one of our most beloved activities, which is studying the Bible or saying that we study the Bible. Take your pick. Uh, yet, as important as studying the Bible is for seeing Jesus clearly, and it is central, it is foundational to that, it's still not the only thing that's necessary to seeing Jesus correctly. It is necessary, don't get me wrong, you need to know the Bible, but it's not all that's necessary. There's one other thing that Mark says you need. Uh, but just to keep you on the edge of your seats for a moment longer, uh, let's answer that by thinking about the Messianic secret for a second in Mark. So like I said, in Mark, he uses this Messianic secret, Jesus telling people to be quiet about his identity to force you to answer for yourself, who is Jesus? Now, I think it's interesting to notice how this secret frequently receives a good answer throughout the Gospel of Mark, because in Mark's Gospel, it takes more than facts to answer this question, to give a good answer. Uh, in other words, Mark is teaching us you don't answer that question well simply by being good at Bible trivia. So if you were to read through Mark's Gospel, you would see that there are actually lots of people, there are lots of folk who know factually who Jesus is. And the prime example of that are the demons. Throughout Mark's gospel, they know exactly who Jesus is. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But you have to ask yourself, because Mark wants you to, what good does that knowledge do them? Likewise, the crowds in Mark clearly seem to know who Jesus is. In the triumphal entry, just as an example, they get many of the facts correct. They identify Jesus as the Messiah, correct. As the one who comes in the name of the Lord to restore Israel, correct. 
They see that with the arrival of Jesus comes the kingdom of David. That's correct. In terms of factual knowledge, they are making some of the same confessions of faith that we make every Sunday. But what happens in the end? That factual knowledge doesn't seem to benefit them because knowing all of that, they are perfectly happy to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ and say, give us Barabbas, not Jesus. Kill him instead. Now think of the disciples. Think of Peter's famous confession of faith back in chapter 8 of Mark. When Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of a living God. It doesn't get more right than that. That is what we confess every Sunday. But what happens when Jesus starts explaining what that means? Betrayal, crucifixion, resurrection. Peter, in a move that is startling, and the only time that this ever happens in the Gospels, a disciple of a rabbi, the follower of the guy who just confessed that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, he rebukes Jesus. Eventually, the disciples end up fleeing in fear, and they all abandon him, right? You see, Mark is showing us it's one thing to know true facts about Jesus. It's one thing to know what the Bible says and to have that knowledge in your head. That's important. But it's another thing entirely to wrap your life around those facts. You see, Mark isn't simply asking us, who is Jesus? But what will you do about it? How will you change your life because of it? Will you, by faith, take up your cross and follow Jesus as his disciple? Because after all, while knowing facts about Jesus is, as I've said, clearly necessary, just like knowing facts about your best friend or your spouse is necessary, but if your life is not transformed by that knowledge, if you don't incorporate that into the way that you talk about them and the way that you treat them and the way that you celebrate them, what good has that knowledge done you? That's why Mark uh, uses the Messianic secret, and he has it appear whenever people finishing finish confessing facts about Jesus. The demons say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet now. Peter confesses faith. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells him, okay, don't say any more. Why? Because Mark's gospel is written to drive us from a mere factual confession to a life that is transformed by that confession to desire to have our life shaped and wrapped around that confession. It's not simply, who do you say Jesus is, but what will you do with that knowledge? And that's why in our Lord's speech to the disciples, after Peter's rebuke of Jesus in Mark chapter 8 is so important, because after this speech, like in the triumphal entry, uh, this appear, or I should say, because this speech, like the triumphal entry, appears in every one of the Gospels. After Peter rebukes Jesus, and after Jesus tells Peter to get behind me, he tells him over and over again, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You've confessed who I am. I've told you what that looks like. Now you have to choose to follow me in my mission or not. 
Jesus, in other words, was telling Peter that he has to unite this confession to his life. And until Peter was ready to do that, his factually correct confession did not yield the deep benefits that it could. It's not that he wasn't saved. I mean, obviously he was saved. But did it produce faithfulness to Jesus? No. Peter still pulls out his sword, cuts off the guard's ear because he wants an earthly kingdom, and then runs away, hides from a servant girl, and locks himself in a room when Jesus is being crucified. And while Peter eventually exchanges his sword for a cross, that doesn't happen until he lays down his life and his pride at Jesus' feet and Jesus restores him at the end. Let me emphasize this some more. Mark is saying that you cannot see Jesus clearly unless you are ready to embrace his identity with your whole life. To clearly see Jesus means you must be willing to live a life shaped by the facts of who he is. And by the way, this is actually a very common perspective in the Bible. God says often in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Hosea, that though his people frequently confess the right things about him, they don't know him very well because their lives are not conformed to that knowledge and therefore they are not able to see God and his ways in the world clearly. So Peter gets taught in Mark 8 to see Jesus clearly by being told that his true confession of Christ which was necessary to see in the first place, must now be united to a life that lives out of that confession. A life of self-denial, cross-bearing, forgiveness, a willingness to suffer for the gospel and all the rest. So to return then to our question, after all of that, why did the crowd not see Jesus clearly? It isn't that their facts about Jesus were wrong. It's that they did not want those facts to be expressed and lived out through Jesus, the way that Jesus was actually living them out. They wanted a rich, earthly king who would save them and bring death to their enemies. They wanted these facts to be about a political kingdom of power and military might, not a spiritual kingdom of peace and reconciliation between Jew and Gentile through Jesus. And I think we can say that because they didn't want to see that. Because they didn't want their lives to have to take that same cross shape. If this is the way our king lives, this is the way we're going to have to live. But I don't want to live, win through dying to self and taking up my cross and following Christ. I want to win by them dying. <laughs> I want to live by them going home and me getting to sing taunt songs at them. Nana, nana, boo, boo, right? Like that's how I want to win. Winning with Jesus is different. And they didn't want to see Jesus as he was offering himself because they didn't want to win through the ways that he was going to win heaven for us. Beloved, to see Jesus clearly, the king of peace, we do need to get our facts straight like the crowd. We need to see Jesus riding in on a donkey as the king of his people. We need to join them in crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Uh, we need to bless Jesus as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And with the church throughout history, we need to celebrate his entrance as the coming of the kingdom of God on earth. But then we also need to wrap these facts into and around our life. We need to follow our king in his self-denial and humility. We need to holster our swords and pick up our crosses and follow Jesus so that our kingdom will not be of this world. 
And so that our desire would not be death for our enemies or for those who we are in conflict with, but rather salvation for our neighbors in a life of peace with us through Jesus by the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. That is how we see Jesus clearly. If you are saying to yourself, I'm having a hard time seeing Jesus in my life. I'm having a hard time seeing Jesus at work. Mark invites you to take this confession and say, okay, how do I start wrapping my life more and more into the ways of Jesus? And then I will see him even more clearly. And know that as you do that, as you conform your life more and more to your confession of faith, you will see Jesus more clearly. You will grow more deeply in relationship with him, and you will understand more fully how he is at work in the world and in your life to bring the gospel of reconciliation to fruition in all of us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do want to see Jesus clearly, and we do want to know him deeply. Uh, We don't only want to know facts about our Savior, though we do want to know facts about him, but we want those facts to change our lives and to shape our hearts so that we can follow him into the kingdom of peace by preaching and believing and living out of his gospel of peace. And so we ask that you would help us to follow our Savior by faith as he leads us to take up our crosses and follow him. And we ask this in his name and for the sake of his work in our lives so that we might know him more and know the power of his resurrection more together in our life with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.